Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So that brings us to step two, uh, acknowledging the specific history and realness of my suffering. Uh, You know, the way that I've titled this one is, I can't forget and I don't want to remember. Kind of that catch-22. And there's really nothing fun about this step. Um, But it is good. Uh, And when you hear me say it's good, I think the temptation for many of us is, well, if it's good and it's necessary but it's not fun, I'm just going to get through it as fast as I can. And if we binge on this kind of material, uh, we can re-traumatize ourselves in that process of trying to grow. And so again, that continued encouragement uh, to take your time with this material. That's why Diane Langberg, she says, um, though the single most common therapeutic error is avoidance. Okay? The, the most typical thing that any of us do is we just we don't want to deal with this. Um, probably the second most common error is premature engagement um, in the exploratory work uh, without sufficient um, attention to the task of establishing safety uh, and building a lot of trust with the person that I'm going through this. Uh, Therapy always involves juggling your need uh, to face what happened and to feel safe. Uh, To tell is to feel unsafe. I mean, to talk about the things that we experienced is awful. Silence is to be stuck and alone. And so throughout this material, we're always juggling that aspect of there's something about this that I need to process and grow And that's uncomfortable. At the same time, I need a sense of safety in order to feel comfortable doing that. And so, it's where we don't really ever leave step one behind. Step one is kind of our touching point. It's our safety point. It's where we come back to base. If you remember playing tag, and it's the spot where where you don't have to run around anymore and worry about anybody chasing you. Uh, Step one is base. And whenever we need to come to base, uh, we do that. Now, Uh, You see an evaluation there, uh, and uh, we're going to look more at the latter part of that. Uh, I give you the numbered parts so that as we go through uh, the different types of symptoms of post-traumatic stress, that you can go back and look and see what kind of experiences correlate with what we're talking about. Uh, Now, we're going to look at three symptom clusters, uh, and then we'll add a couple to that. But uh, kind of the classic three symptom clusters of post-traumatic stress are hyperarousal, intrusion, and constriction. And then we're going to talk about uh, two other pieces, just a sense of shame that often comes, uh, and fragmentation. Uh, not, not all of these uh, are present in every experience of trauma, um, but uh, I want to help you get to know that experience a little bit. Uh, and so hyperarousal uh, is where our fight-or-flight response is always on. Uh, The adrenal system is left on high. And there's a lot of emotional and cognitive and relational impact from always having your fight or flight response on. Uh, And one of those is hypervigilance. 
You know, if you just take the two parts of that word, hyper uh, means elevated, vigilance means watchfulness. If you think about it, trauma usually surprises us. It catches us off guard. And after we've been caught off guard by something this impactful, we want to make sure that that never happens again. And the only way to make sure that I never get caught off guard again is to pay attention to everything that I'm not paying attention to. Which makes total sense, except it's impossible. Uh, And this perpetual sense of watchfulness, it doesn't give me the ability to rest. And in relationship, forever being watchful like that, it begins to erode the foundation for trust. And so it makes it hard for me to rest personally, and it makes it very hard for me to trust interpersonally. And then there's agitation. Uh, Being always on guard is just a step away from being aggressive. When, When you're always looking for a threat, you're much more prone to perceive a small irritant um, as something that's much larger than it really is. Uh, And so uh, that aspect of hyper-arousal, of always looking for what it is that's going on, uh, it impacts me uh, in my ability to rest, that interpersonal sense of trust. It makes small irritants something that are much more agitating. And then, then we hit symptoms of intrusion. This is where things come into our mind when we don't want it to. We can't pick up and set down memories uh, at our will. And part of this is because traumatic memories imprint differently than narrative memories. And so when I think about me as a kid playing baseball, baseball was one of my favorite games. It's one of the things I love to do uh, with my boys. When I see me, I, I kind of see me out there on that old country baseball field and my pants were too big and uh, I hit the ball and I run to third base instead of first base and everybody's yelling I run straight across the diamond to get to first base and they say, touch first base. And so I touch it with my hand. I didn't know what I was doing. And when I see all of that, I see it over there. It's kind of like a movie, it's on a screen. There's this sense of chronological distance between me and that memory. That's not how traumatic memories imprint. They imprint from here. I don't see them over there. It's as if I remember them in real time. I remember them from behind my eyes, from the midst of the experience, not from a distance. And so... Um, And it's that, you know, we said intrusive symptoms is when we don't feel like we're in control of what thoughts we pick up and set down. That's really where we begin to feel crazy, uh, where we just don't feel like we're totally in charge of our own faculties. Uh, And so what are some of those symptoms of intrusion? Uh, Trigger responses. You know, human memory is highly dependent upon association. I mean, you're in a spot and all of a sudden you hear a song and you remember an event. You Ah, I hadn't thought of that in years. Uh, And there's an association between a memory and a song, or maybe a smell. And what happens with post-traumatic stress is that sense of association uh, gets hijacked. Because in that moment of trauma, we associate to so many things. Uh, It may be the smell of gunpowder or body fluids. It may be a loud sound of a siren. It may be somebody banging on the door. Any number of things that, that begin to become... Very dangerous experiences for us. And then uh, there's flashbacks. 
Um, one way to think of a flashback uh, is flashbacks are past memories experienced as present realities. Again, I lose any sense of chronological distance. And this is because of that uh, way that traumatic memories imprint differently. Uh, And again, just foreshadowing here a little bit, the more uh, that that memory seems to be coming from right back here, the more we need to be able to practice some sense of relaxation so that we can create a sense of chronological distance between us and that memory before we try to do anything else with it. Again, that'll be something that we come back to. Uh, Then there's sleep disturbances. Sleep and dreams are probably the least understood aspect of human experience. Uh, You can talk to experts in either of those areas, and they cannot tell you why we do them. Uh, It is not adaptive for any person or animal to spend a third of its existence unconscious. And why we dream what we do, whether it's a scary, nasty dream or purple pandas dancing on a pirate ship, we just we don't know why those things happen. Uh, but we do know after a trauma, uh, oftentimes there are disturbances in our ability to sleep, uh, oftentimes because we don't want to let down the control uh, to be able to let ourselves pass off into sleep, uh, and then the disturbance of sleep that can come Uh, with nightmares. Now the third area of uh, symptoms is symptoms of constriction. Uh, And after an intense experience, uh, normal experiences often feel muted. Uh, We've all experienced this. You jump on a trampoline and then you get off and it feels like you got uh, concrete in your shoes. You go to a rock concert and, and then you're trying to hear somebody talk in the normal range and you can't hear it. In terms of its degree of emotional resonance, by definition, trauma is huge. And then we come back in that normal range of life, and it's much harder to relate to things in that normal range again. And one of the ways that we often respond to that is avoidance and isolation. This is probably the most intentional and volitional of all the responses that we're talking about. Most of these other things we do involuntarily. They feel like things that are happening to us much more than what we're doing. Uh, isolation and avoidance. Um, you know, when, when I feel like life is more than I can handle, I just do everything I can to limit anything else coming into my life. And if other people might have expectations of me, if they might have emotions or something, I just... I kind of begin to avoid them. It makes a lot of sense. It's just not necessarily healthy. And so it's one of those things that we need to look out for and to pay attention to when we're doing it. Another aspect that's in play is numbing. Intense experiences make us less sensitive to normal experiences. And this creates a trap. Again, for some people it's isolation. Uh, For other people, when they can't feel, uh, you remember going to the dentist and they like shoot your jaw up with Novocaine or whatever it is and you can't feel something and you're just kind of slapping it and you want to see how hard you got to slap your jaw before you can feel it because it it doesn't feel right. Well, for a lot of people when emotionally they just feel numb because they've been through a trauma and everything in the normal range is there, 
they begin to do things that are harmful or dangerous just so they can feel something. And it's a way to make the numbness go away. Uh, and it's the kind of thing where they're in a normal relationship where they used to care a lot. And because they're constricted, they feel like they don't care about that person anymore. Now the fact that it bothers them so much that they don't care kind of reveals that they do and it's much more a matter of numbing than them not caring. Uh, but it's one of those things that if we don't understand it, uh, we don't know how to interpret that experience. And then there's dissociation. And it's kind of hard to describe uh, because it's an atypical way of experiencing life. Uh, and so the, the best way that I know to describe dissociation uh, is most of us have had a dissociative dream. It's not a psychobabble term, but you know those dreams where like you see you over there uh, and you're going through and you're doing stuff and you're, it's kind of that out-of-body dream and you're watching it over there? Uh, that's considered a dissociative dream. Uh, maybe a, another experience of dissociation is if you've talked to somebody who's been in a, a near-death experience, maybe they uh, felt like they were, they were going to drown in a pool and they said, it's almost like I was watching myself fall from the top of the water and I would watch my body go down. It, that was a dissociative experience. And when we think about dissociation, in some ways we can view it as a grace of God. That there is a way that God gave us to get some distance between us and excruciating experiences. And so in that a moment of trauma, it may be a very adaptive reflex that we have. But then outside the experience of trauma, it can become something that's maladaptive uh, in ways that we'll talk about more uh, a bit later. Then there's uh, a couple of other responses to trauma uh, that I think are worth noting. Uh, one is shame. Uh, after going through trauma, we can feel worthless, inferior, weak, humiliated, exposed, defiled. And we can embrace those kinds of sentiments towards ourself as who we are. And if we, if we don't understand how shame and trauma go together, then we can begin to surrender to the kind of defeatist or reactive tendency uh, that, that that kind of shame-based identity would have. And a final area of understanding trauma uh, would be fragmentation. It's where we talk about the pieces of our life uh, as if they weren't connected to the whole. Um, and, that, and part of it makes sense. Because when you've been through a trauma, who wants to talk about that? I mean, the classic example that comes to my mind is if you imagine being the kid who gets abused at home, and he comes to school on Monday, and people ask, how was your day? How was your weekend? What am I supposed to say? I have to talk about my life as if that part doesn't exist. So maybe another classic example of, um, of fragmentation would be if you've ever talked to a, a family member or a friend who's in the throes of addiction, uh, and they come to you and they make a request. They say, hey, I'm just really in a tough spot and I need, I need a little help here. Can, can you kind of help me along with some money? Um, and, and you say no, uh, because this has happened several times before, and then they go, ah, I guess, you know, you're right, I shouldn't come to my friends, I should just be able to deal with this. 
Now, wait a second. They're taking that request of somehow I'm supposed... And, and they're taking that request as if it wasn't a part of this longer history that we have. And then you say, but wait a second. You've come to me four times and I've given you money and you've never paid me back and we've talked about it and you told me not to do this. Why are you going to throw that in my face? I mean, I, I thought you were a Christian and you were going to forgive. Now, wait a second. Now they're dealing with this conversation as if they weren't the one who brought it up. And so each of the pieces are true. It's just not connected to the total of my life story. And when I've got these traumatic pieces of my life that just feel like they overwhelm day-to-day conversation, then I get pretty good at telling my story in a way that doesn't connect to all the other pieces of my life. Which means I feel like the people who know me don't even really know me. Um, and again, I give you a criteria here about do any of these symptoms, are they exacerbated by alcohol, drugs, prescription medicine? And Simply here, I, I would say this is more of a red flag than usual. Because in the aftermath of trauma, it is very easy to begin to live for relief. And when you live for relief and you begin to take a mind or mood altering substance, the tendency to abuse that is so much greater. Uh, And so if that's there, uh, it is because of the greater tendency after trauma to substance abuse, uh, it's more of a concern. Now with that, uh, I give you, it's on page 16 of your notebook there, uh, a, a daily symptom chart. It looks like this. Uh, As an OCD person, it has lots of rows and columns, and it makes me very happy because I like that kind of order and structure that's there. Um, But this is something meant to help you get to know, what is my experience of trauma like? Where you can, you know, all of the symptoms that we talked about and maybe some of the triggers that are more frequent for you, you can put those down. And just over the course of a month, you can see how frequently and how intensely that they show up. And the goal here, initially, is just to become more familiar uh, with your experience. Uh, To begin to identify kind of the rise and fall of symptoms. Uh, Later on, uh, you'll begin to use that kind of tool to measure growth. Um, But for right now, uh, it's more of just demystifying the experience. It's being able to name things. And when it happens, not to feel like it's something that's just attacking you, but to go, ah, I know what this is. This is what's going on. I can begin to measure it. And and as I demystify it, it's giving me the information that I'm going to need later to begin to tackle it. So that I begin to feel like, even if right now it feels like I'm losing, I'm getting the information that I need to begin to win. And again, what we want to begin to see is that we can make choices that matter. That we can begin to gather information and understand what's going on in such a way that this isn't just something that happens to us, but we can begin to do some things to impact this experience. Now, under this idea of acknowledging the history of what's happened, another question becomes, Who do I talk to? And what do I say? Um, And Dan Allender, he he tells us, true hope never minimizes a problem in order to make it more palatable um, and easily managed. For the Christian, 
Hope begins by recognizing the utter hopelessness of our condition and the necessity of divine intervention. And so, even as Christians, where in a, a context of sin, we recognized we couldn't save ourselves, in many ways, hope for suffering begins in the same way, of recognizing that in our own strength, this is more than we can handle. And as we do that, uh, we are able to experience more true joy. And so as we talk about who to talk to and, and what you might say, here's a few things to keep in mind. One, all of this information is yours to do with as you please. If you don't feel like this is a good idea, or at least not yet, wait. Don't feel rushed at all. You have a voice. This is your decision to make. You don't have to feel like, I went to the seminar, and he like wrote a prescription, and this is what I've got to do. This is a tool to help you. It's not something to push you in a direction you're not ready for. Sooner is not always better. Ready is better. Uh, and think about the post-disclosure timing. You know, if you've got a wedding coming up for a family member, or Christmas is right around the corner, or something where you go, I just, I'm not sure this is a great time for me to begin talking about this. That's okay. Now, one question would be, to whom is it beneficial for me to begin to acknowledge and disclose what happened? Uh, the biggest factor there uh, would be trust. Uh, and, and a few different kinds of trust. Personal trust. You want this to be somebody whose presence makes you feel more comfortable. Uh, emotional trust. Uh, you want to know that they have the emotional strength to hear what you have to say. This is why so many veterans coming home from war, uh, they, they just see us in a civilian context and they go, there's no way they could understand what happened over there. And it's why we've got to have more conversations in a public forum so that there's a sense that, that trauma is something that can be talked about. An experiential trust. Can this person handle it if I get lost in my memory a little bit? Is that going to to freak them out. That, that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for some trust there. Now, in what level of detail uh, does this kind of disclosure need to happen? There's not a percentage. Uh, there's no mathematical formula that I could give you. Um, but here would be the question that I would say should guide us in that. If what I'm disclosing is less and less dictated by fear and shame, I'm headed in a good direction. If instead of saying, I just, I don't think I could do that, what would they think of me? Or I, I don't think I can talk about that because it would just be overwhelming. If I can say, how much of this am I ready to share? What would be good for this relationship to allow them to encourage me or maybe me to encourage them? And the decision of what I disclose is less and less dictated by fear and shame. I'm in a good spot. Uh, so here's some recommendations. Decide beforehand how much you want to share and just share that much. Uh, it might be good to have kind of an elevator, a 30-second version that if you had a very difficult moment in a public environment where you could just kind of uh, give somebody enough information that you feel like, I can kind of contain that experience. It... Um, and then uh, realize you can always share more. Uh, and so, uh, don't feel like you have to be rushed in that. Uh, when is it beneficial to begin the process of sharing? Um, 
not until you're sure this is a good idea. And if you said, when would I know if this was a good idea? Uh, It's clear to you who you want to talk to. If I don't know who I want to talk to yet, I'm probably not ready. Uh, You believe this is best for you? You've established your environment of safety. You feel like step one uh, has become pretty solid, and you know how much you want to share. Now, what are the benefits? Well, let's think about it this way. Secrets foster shame. When I can share with someone and they don't run away from me and reject me, that alleviates shame. Silence echoes pain. When I share with someone and this doesn't just kind of bounce around in my head like a ping pong ball, it may not make the the actual pain itself go away, but that kind of echo pain, it can do a lot with that. Lies unspoken cannot be refuted. When I can share that with somebody and... You know, there's this dynamic that I've noticed. I have never lost an argument in my own head. Never! In my own head, I win every time. And then as soon as it comes out of my mouth, it doesn't sound nearly as good as it did when it was in my head. Maybe that's just because my wife is smarter than I am. I don't know. Um, But I have never lost an argument in my head because in my head, things make sense in a way that they don't make sense when they come out of my mouth. And when I share that with somebody, I may not totally disbelieve everything that I'm saying, but a little bit of doubt can creep in when it doesn't sound as convincing outside of my mouth as it did inside my head. And isolation keeps pain fresh. Isolation is like insulation. If you take a thermos and it's a really good thermos and you put hot coffee in there, you can come back to that coffee three hours later and you still got hot coffee. Um, When we isolate... It is like a thermos for our soul. And whatever pain is there, it just maintains its temperature. And when I share with somebody, it's like I take the cap off and now there's a spot for some of that heat uh, to diffuse out of there. Now if you were to say, what do I do at the end of, of step two? Take a deep breath. There is nothing true now that wasn't true beforehand. You just know yourself and your experience a little bit better. And you're in complete control of whatever it is that you do uh, or don't want to do with that. And at this point, you have information that you can begin to take wise and intentional steps with uh, when you're ready.